Hi, everyone. Our Bible reading tonight is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. Evening, folks. Nice to be with you tonight. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Oh, boy, it's good to be back to a full contingent of pastors. Welcome back, Ken. Um, if I haven't met you and uh, you're new here, you're visiting us you, uh, here f- for a visit, that kind of thing, can I just direct your attention towards... Uh, the Connect cards, they're out on the welcome desk out there. You can put your details on one of these things, put it in the little letterbox there, and uh, we'll get in touch with you and let you know about things that are happening at WBC and what we're on about and how you could get involved in that kind of stuff. Uh, that'll be a good thing to do after the service. Uh, I just want to also give you a little bit of a note about what's happening from this point forward with uh, WBC. So uh, we have been working through this series in Matthew's Gospel since Christmas. We've gone all the way from Chapter 1 tonight, get to the end of Chapter 4. Next week, we're going to press pause on Matthew, and we're going to have a think, as we do at the start of every year, about our mission as a church to know Christ and to make him known, that great statement that you walk past every week when you walk into these doors. And uh, and then we'll return to Matthew's Gospel the following week, picking up from chapter 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And for the rest of term one, we're just going to camp out in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 and spend the whole time thinking about Jesus' greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the series handbooks have been written. They're getting printed this week, so you'll be able to pick up the Bible studies and whatnot out in the foyer next Sunday if you're keen for that. We'll have more details about home groups and stuff in the coming days as well. Right now, though, I want to pray, and then uh, we'll get stuck into the passage together. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for another day to be uh, here together as brothers and sisters 
with your word open and hearing you speak to us. Uh, God, we cannot calculate what good it does for us to hear you speaking, but we believe it and we know it and we've experienced it, that when you speak, you bring light and life and blessing. And so we pray that even now, as we think about your words to us here in Matthew chapter 4, uh, that you would help us to, to understand them and to believe them and to trust the Lord Jesus as we see him in these words and to follow him. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, he knew that it was going to be a big deal. Uh, he knew it would change the world, this invention that he had come up with. And so he took out a patent on his invention. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell was 29 when he invented the telephone, and he was kind of broke. He was a bit of a failed inventor at that point, hadn't really done much and uh, didn't have much in his bank account. And uh, so thinking about what he should do with this patent he'd taken out, he went to Western Union, which were the largest telegraph provider uh, in the world at that time, and he offered to sell them his patent for this telephone for $100,000. doesn't sound like an awful lot these days, but this was back in 1876. So $100,000 was a lot of money in 1876. Western Union, well, they sort of received that offer and they thought about it, they investigated, would it be worth it? And then they issued a report on whether they should buy the patent for the telephone. And I want to read you just a little bit of what Western Union said about buying the patent for Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. This is what Western Union concluded. We do not see that this device will ever be capable of sending recognisable speech for more than several miles. Hubbard and Bell, Hubbard's the other guy who invented it with Bell, wanted to install one of their telephone devices in every city. The idea is idiotic on the face of it. Furthermore, why would anybody want to use this ungainly and impractical device when they can send a messenger to the telegraph office and have a clear written message sent to the city of his choice? Ignoring the obvious limitations of this device, which is hardly more than a toy, this device is inherently of no use to us. We do not recommend its purchase. <laughs> it's got to be one of the all-time biggest historical oops, doesn't it? Within about two or three years, Bell's patent on the telephone was estimated to be worth about $30 million, again, back in the late 1900s. They do say that hindsight is 2020, but boy, you'd be kicking yourself, wouldn't you, if you missed out on one of these all-time, life-changing, world-defining opportunities right when it came across your doorstep. As we come to this passage in Matthew's Gospel tonight, in the verses that we've just had read out, we are reading about one such life-changing, world-defining moment in human history. It is the point at which Jesus steps forward onto the public stage and begins his ministry. Uh, Jesus at this point is kind of the new kid on the block in, uh, in Israel. Uh, the nation of Israel has been kind of stirred up into a bit of a frenzy uh, by the ministry of John the Baptist. We've been reading about that over the last couple of weeks, if you've been here. Crowds of people from all over the nation have been flocking to him out in the desert to hear him preach and to get baptised by him. And many of those people thought that John the Baptist was this great, long-promised deliverer and redeemer and saviour that God had been talking about for hundreds of years. And so many people had become followers of John the Baptist. Now, John, for his part, was desperately trying to avoid that. He was pointing people away from himself and towards Jesus. But we read in, in this passage in verse 12, right at the start, very matter-of-factly, Matthew mentions that John had been arrested 
and put in prison. Turns out that King Herod didn't like the message that John was preaching. You can read about this back in uh, Mark chapter 6. And so now Jesus is kind of the only prophet in Israel. He's the, the one who's left standing in the spotlight. And the question that lingers is, well, what is this going to mean for Jesus? Are people now going to take a look at Jesus and buy into him? Are they going to see the value that there is in Jesus? Or are they going to kind of look at him the same way the Western Union execs looked at the telephone and think, well, he's of no use to us. We can dismiss him. Are they going to miss out on this life-changing, world-defining opportunity that is right there staring them in the face? Uh, You might be here tonight uh, as somebody who is standing on the outside looking in to the Christian faith. If you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, we're really pleased to have you. It might be that this is the exact question that you're asking when it comes to Jesus. Is there anything of value to be found in him? Is he really worth following, worth hitching my wagon to, as so many Christians have done? I think that today's passage, if that's you, if those are your sort of questions, I think today's passage is going to be especially helpful for you to help you to consider whether to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, Or if you're here tonight and you're part of the majority of people, Christians here, who have already made the decision to become a follower of Jesus, I hope this passage will be a great reminder for you about just how precious Jesus is and why it's always the right decision to follow him with your life. In the passage, we're going to look at three quick vignettes that Matthew shows us that address this topic of following Jesus. And I think what Matthew's going to do is he's going to show us the who, the what, and the why of following Jesus. The who following Jesus, the what of following Jesus, and the why of following Jesus. So firstly, let's start at the beginning and think about who of following Jesus. Pick it up in verse 12 where Matthew begins this this section by talking a little bit about Jesus's movements right after John the Baptist has been arrested. Let's read in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Jesus is up north in the nation of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee up there, and he moves from the town that he grew up in, in Nazareth, over to kind of set up, if you like, his ministry headquarters for his first year of public ministry in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum was a a sort of a bustling market town on the northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew mentions there, you notice in verse 13, that this is in the area of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew uses those names for this region, not because the people living there were still using those names. They were the ancient tribal names that Israel referred to that region by. People weren't calling them Zebulun and Naphtali anymore, but Matthew calls them that because he's trying to help us to remember back to a prophecy that took place some 700 years before this moment by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, when Isaiah talks about this being the place where the light of the world was going to dawn. So have a read from verse 14, what Matthew says. All this, Jesus' movements, were to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 15, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light 
had dawned. Now, this is the fifth time in four chapters that Matthew has mentioned that the events here surrounding Jesus' arrival are fulfilling the words of Scripture. Matthew is going to great lengths to prove that Jesus really is the one that God had been speaking about for hundreds of years in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, when Isaiah made that prophecy, it was about 700 years before Jesus, and Isaiah and his people, the nation of Israel, they were facing a terrifying prospect. Uh, There was an army that was about to sweep down from the north into Israel and completely decimate the nation. This was an army that God had sent to do so because of Israel's rebellion against him. And for Isaiah, many of his countrymen were about to be killed. And the rest of them were about to be exiled and sent away from their homes and away from the presence of God. And so Isaiah is staring down the barrel of this kind of world-ending catastrophe and he describes it as darkness. He describes it as living in the shadow of death. And really Isaiah's predicament there, Israel's predicament at that stage of impending death and impending judgment, well, the Bible is quite clear that that is actually a microcosm of the predicament of the whole world. Because whether we know it or not, the whole world is facing death, facing judgment, because we, just like Israel, have all rebelled against God. The natural state of humanity is, in one sense, darkness. It is death. It is separation from him who is our life. You know, no matter how great your life may be, no matter what kind of a kingdom you build in this life, no matter how many blessings you enjoy, no matter how rich the relationships you have in your life, no matter how significant your achievements are in this life, the shadow of death looms over you just as much as it looms over me. We too live in darkness. And it's against that backdrop that God is going to send his light into the world. I found out this week that the brightest light on earth is the sky beam in Las Vegas. The sky beam is this massive light that sits atop the Luxor Hotel in Vegas. And since 1993, it has shone every night. It's light up into the sky. It's rated as being the, as bright as the equivalent of a 100 million watt light bulb. I can't even comprehend that, right? The way it's kind of constructed is that there are 39 individual very powerful lights that are pointing down into this kind of reflective dish at the top of the pyramid that then focus the light and send it completely vertically upwards and that I mean you can tell can't you it is so arresting that light you can see it from anywhere in fact airline pilots say that they can see it from over 400 kilometers away shooting up into the sky there was a story from the 90s of an astronaut in a space shuttle who was woken up by this light shining into his eyes whilst he was in orbit that's how bright it is it is arresting it's just a spectacle to see this thing but I tell you As amazing as that light is, as bright, as arresting as it is, it is nothing in comparison to the light that was dawning with the arrival of Jesus. Jesus, you see, taught that he was the light of the world and that he had come to shine into our spiritual darkness, that he had in fact come to banish our darkness, not just to light up a little bit of the sky, but to dispel that darkness that we were living in, that that judgment, that guilt, that death that looms over every single one of us. Jesus had come to take it away, 
and to bring us back to God. That is what Jesus came to earth to do. By his sacrificial death on the cross, he swallowed our darkness so that we can receive the life and love of God. I want to say to you tonight, if you are someone who is here and you know exactly what I'm talking about, you know yourself to be a person living in darkness, however it is that you understand that, whether it's through broken relationships in your life or a sense of guilt for things that you know that you've done wrong or just a general emptiness of purpose in your life or perhaps a crippling fear of death, if you understand yourself to be in darkness, then hear these words. You do not need to despair because the light of the world has dawned. And it it hasn't dawned for the people who are already living in the sunshine. It's come for the people who find themselves in darkness, for people like you and I, people who are invited then to step into the light, to follow Jesus. That is who is invited to follow Jesus, those who know themselves to be in darkness. Now, see, friends, this light, it is shining still to this day. And there are millions of people, even today, who are turning to Jesus for life, many of whom are in this room. That's who is to follow Jesus. The second thing that we see in this passage is what following Jesus will look like. Matthew shows us from verse 17. So read with me. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if that little sermon (laughs) sounds uh, familiar to you, it's because it's the exact same thing that John the Baptist was preaching earlier in the book of Matthew. Jesus, in a sense, picks up right where John the Baptist left off. And it's as if he's trying to show King Herod, you know, you can make an attempt to shut up the messengers of God, but you cannot stop God's message. God's plans are fixed and they cannot be stopped. And it is striking, isn't it, that the very first public word out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel is Jesus calling people to repent, to, to turn around, change their mind, change their direction. This is in its simplest form what it will look like for us to follow Jesus. We repent. That is the only way that people like us who live in spiritual darkness can prepare for the rule of God. That's what Jesus is talking about with that little phrase, the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the rule of God over our lives. Because sinners like you and me, we cannot be involved in the rule of God unless we change, unless we repent. But do realise that the fact that we can repent and that we can do that by God's power is actually part of the good news that Jesus has come to bring. You know, so many times I think people hear that word repent and, oh, it's an ugly kind of harsh-sounding word, isn't it? They feel threatened. They feel condemned by that instruction to repent. And I understand that. It can come across that way. But I hope that you can see how this command here is actually wonderfully hope-giving. Jesus is not commanding us to do something impossible here. You really can change. God's Holy Spirit really can cause things to happen in your life that have never, ever happened before. God is real and he works in people's lives and he does things like this. He can enable us to repent and to change. 
This repenting that Jesus calls us to, it is what every Christian does at the start of their journey of following Jesus. But I tell you, it's also something that we continue to do. We must continue to do as we follow Jesus. If, if you think that repentance is only something that you, you know, a non-Christian does when they turn to Jesus, well, perhaps, friend, you haven't reflected properly on the sin that you've committed since you became a Christian. Have you noticed that you have not become perfect yet? I've noticed. Have you noticed that you continue, continue to do things that are wrong, that you know are wrong, that God says are wrong, that you continue to love things that you know you shouldn't, that you continue to say things that you shouldn't and not say things that you should. Those are sins that we continue to do. So we as Christians need to continue to repent of our sins as we follow Jesus and live under the rule of God. That is a normal part of the Christian life. And so can I just sort of apply this to us and remind you, friends, that this means that there is no need for any one of us to put on a mask and then to come to church and to pretend to be that one person who doesn't sin. We don't need to do that, do we? We need to be honest with one another because we are all in this boat together, honest about our sins and our struggles so that we can help one another to continue to repent and to live under Jesus' rule. That's a normal part of the Christian life, so don't put a mask on. Matthew, at this point, then shows us, I guess, a few examples of people who chose to follow Jesus, who chose to do just that. Pick up from verse 18 as Matthew continues the story. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. It's an incredible little episode, isn't it? You just sort of paint that picture in your mind as you read it. Uh, Matthew leaves out some of the details that the other gospel writers mention, which is that these fishermen had met Jesus before this. This was not Jesus' first interaction with them. They had sort of been introduced to Jesus through John the Baptist, as it were. But Matthew, I think, is showing us these little glimpses of what following Jesus looks like because they are meant to be models for us to copy, to emulate, of following Jesus. And did you notice that as Jesus calls them there, their response to his call is both immediate and total? Did you pick up on that? It's immediate and total. It's immediate in the sense of, look, verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed. Verse 22, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. They didn't delay. They, they didn't say to Jesus, ah, now's not a good time for us, Jesus. You see, we're fishing. We've got a business to run here. Give us six months until we can hire a manager and hand over to them and take some long service leave and then we'll come and follow you. No, they didn't do that. They didn't say, well, Jesus, just let me pay off my mortgage and then I'll travel around with you and be your disciple. Let me just finish my uni first and then I'll take you seriously, Jesus. Just wait until things are a little bit more convenient for me. No, they don't say that at all. They respond immediately. They drop everything. And I want to say that the, the fact that they respond immediately reminds us that actually we are always, every single one of us, making a decision about Jesus. Even when we think we are not, we are making a decision about Jesus and whether he's worth following. 
These men knew that Jesus was worthy. And so their response is immediate. And their response is also total. Peter and Andrew leave their, their nets, their, their business. John and James leave their boat they leave, and their father. They leave their family to go and do this. This is radical, costly discipleship, isn't it? They leave everything behind. Why? Because they understand that they have found everything that they need in Jesus. Now, friends, we are not called in exactly the same way as these disciples were called. You and I do not need to don sandals and go and trek the dusty streets of Galilee, literally following Jesus. But this call of being immediate and total, that still stands for every single one of us. That is the response we must have towards Jesus. Uh, perhaps it's a, a, a cliched kind of an illustration, but if you'll bear with me, and you can imagine your life as like a car traveling down a highway. And on the side of the road, you see Jesus standing there and you decide to, to pull over. And what are you going to do with Jesus at that point? What are you going to say to him? Is he welcome in your car? <laughs> do you say to Jesus, Jesus, I, I don't have much interest in you, really. I guess I'm willing to journey with you. Why don't you just stay out of the way, hop in the boot, in fact. I'd rather if you didn't take up any precious space inside. The... Is that what you're going to say to Jesus? Are you going to say to Jesus, okay, Jesus, uh, jump in the back seat there and just if you could keep quiet, please. If I want to speak to you, I'll let you know, but in the meantime, zip it. Is that what you're going to say to Jesus? Are you going to say to Jesus, all right, Jesus, there's room for you in the passenger seat and I don't mind if you chime in every now and then and give me a little bit of input, a little bit of advice. That's welcome. That's fine, Jesus, but, you know, let's... To keep it balanced? Is that what you're going to say to Jesus? Or are you going to take the keys out of the ignition, open your door, walk around, hand them to Jesus and say, you drive. You drive, Jesus. That is what a follower of Jesus does. They give their whole lives to him. And that is that's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? Let's be honest. It is scary to think about giving over your life to Jesus because, let's face it, we want to be in control of our lives. But I tell you, it's also one of the most liberating things you can do because the truth is that we are not in control of our lives, are we? Handing your life over to Jesus is scary because we think we know what's best for us. But handing your life over to Jesus is liberating because Jesus knows so much better than we do what's good for us. Giving Jesus total control of your life is scary because we don't know what Jesus will do with us. But giving Jesus total control of your life is liberating because he knows exactly what he will do with you. If you think about those, those war stories you hear from time to time about those great military leaders in battle, you know, rush out into the line of fire to save an injured soldier and then pull them back to safety. You know, a platoon sergeant who goes and does that for one of his soldiers, well, then that platoon is going to love him and, and follow him into the jaws of death from that point on, aren't they? Because they know that that sergeant cares for them and that he will do what is best for them. Friends, do you think you can trust Jesus? Do you think you can trust the one whose hands were pierced for you? Do you think you can entrust your life into those hands? I think you can. Following Jesus means trusting him with our whole lives, trusting him to direct our whole lives. 
And just as it was for these fishermen, it means joining in with what Jesus is doing in the world. Jesus gives these men a new mission. In fact, he gives them a promotion. Did you pick up on that in verse 19? They're fishermen, and Jesus says, come follow me, and I'll send you out to fish for people. I've got bigger game to catch. You see, Jesus calls them. This is the pattern. And then they are to call others. That's the job description of a disciple of Jesus. Followers of Jesus call other people to become followers of Jesus, who call other people to become followers of Jesus, and so on. That's the pattern. That's Jesus' master plan for saving souls in this world. He establishes it here from day one in his ministry. And you know what's magnificent to see? That the final words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel are a punctuation mark on that job. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. What does Jesus say? Go and make disciples. Jesus could not make it any clearer to us that if we are followers of his, we have a job to do. Friends, all of those people that you know who don't love Jesus, those people who are languishing in the darkness, who are living in the shadow of death, how do you expect them to come into the light of Jesus unless you call them? Surely, Surely, if you know how good it is to live in the light of Jesus, you will want other people to come into that light too. One commentator that I was reading this week observed that the church throughout the centuries has often struggled with the temptation to be keepers of the aquarium rather than fishers of men. Friends, pray that that would not be the case for WBC. Pray that we would be people who listen to our Saviour's command here. Pray that we would be fishers of men. Pray that this church would increasingly include people who have recently been won to Christ. Pray that God would be pleased to call more people to himself through the witness of members of this church. Friends, pray that we would be people who turn away from our old lives, from our sin, and surrender our entire lives in obedience to Jesus, listening to his direction. That is what following Jesus is to look like. The last thing that Matthew wants to show us as he finishes this section is a little reminder, I guess, about why we ought to follow Jesus. It's the why. Read again with me from verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness around the people, among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. I mean, if it wasn't obvious from Matthew's gospel so far, this little scene here shows us something of the awesome power and authority that Jesus possessed from the very moment that he stepped foot into the public eye. Do you notice what Matthew is at pains to emphasize here? He says that Jesus goes throughout Galilee. He heals every disease. News spreads all over Syria. People are bringing to him all who were ill. There are large crowds following him. What we see here is that from day one, Jesus was a smash hit. (laughs) Jesus was no John the Baptist wannabe. He filled those shoes and then some. He was a phenom. He he eclipsed John the Baptist in terms of popularity immediately. 
And at least here, at the start of the gospel, at the start of Jesus' ministry, no one is making the same mistake that those Western Union people made. People recognize in Jesus that there is something life-changing and world-defining happening here with his arrival. And it's pretty obvious why they piece that together, isn't it? I mean, along with his teaching and preaching, Jesus is performing countless miracles and healings. And these are not just like minor sniffles and minor little injuries that Jesus is fixing up like some televangelist. No, these were severe debilitating conditions that Jesus is fixing willingly. Severe pain, demon possession, seizures, paralysis. Friends, what's going on here is that we are seeing the kingdom of heaven breaking into this world. These miracles that Jesus performs, they are confirming his preaching, confirming his teaching that the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. And and here is the proof. Here are little previews of what it will be like when the kingdom of heaven comes in its fullness. No more sickness or death or mourning or crying or pain. How marvelous. I think it It's easy to gloss over how surprising this must have been, particularly for the Jewish people who were expecting this Messiah, to see him spend so much of his time healing people. Uh, The Jewish expectations for the Messiah was that he was going to be a a kind of a social or a a political liberator, uh, that he would be a revolutionary and and throw off the, the shackles of Roman tyranny over Israel. But Jesus... He knows that as much of a pressing need as that may have been, it was really the least of their needs. And Jesus had come to address even more profound needs than that. You see, each time Jesus took a broken person and made them whole again, took an unclean person and made them clean, he was communicating something about where the real problem in this universe is and where the solution to that problem is to be found. Our world will tell you in all sorts of different ways that the problems that you face, they're all out there. The pressures that are being exerted upon you by other people, by malicious actors, that's where your source of problems comes from, external. And the solution is to look internally, for you to overcome, for you to just be a little bit stronger, for you to be happy in yourself, satisfied with who you are. That's the world's solution. But Jesus comes along and he presses right in, intimately, into people's personal brokenness. And by doing so, he is showing them that the great problems of the world are not out there. They're they're in here. The problem is in your heart. It is your sin against God. And the solution to that problem is not going to be found by looking inwards. The solution is external to you. You must look to another. You must look to him. Jesus was using their pains and their diseases to bear witness to that, that that was their greatest need. And friends, that is why following Jesus with your whole life is always the right decision. Even if it costs you everything you have, even if it were to cost you your very life with Jesus, you stand to gain infinitely more than you could ever give up in following him because Jesus is the only one who can fix our biggest problem, fix our sin, can dispel our darkness and usher us into the kingdom of God. He's the only one. 
The executives at, at Western Union concluded that $100,000 was too great of a price to pay for the telephone patent. Friends, don't make that same mistake with Jesus. Don't miss out on this life-changing, world-defining opportunity, this invitation that Jesus issues to you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we know ourselves to be people who live in darkness. In our moments of honesty with ourselves, we know that we have created this darkness. We've turned inwards on ourselves. We've not loved and served and honoured you, our creator. And all the brokenness that comes in our lives is our own fault. Jesus, we thank you for your incredible mercy that you stepped into the darkness as the light of the world, that you invited broken people like us to come to you and that you do that still today. Thank you that you invite us to repent, you enable us to repent. Thank you that with you, true change is really possible. And thank you that you invite us into this great work that you are doing in the world of seeing souls saved for eternity. Jesus, would you help each one of us here tonight, whether we made the decision to follow you years ago or whether it has yet to be made, would you help each one of us to see that you are infinitely worthy of being followed? Would you help us to let go of anything it is in this world and in this life that we are holding onto that is preventing us from immediate and total response to your call on our lives? Jesus, would you do us this mercy? Please. Amen.